That song is pretty heart-wrenching because it depicts so well the tension and the love-hate relationship that can often exist within the context of a marriage. Marriage is a relationship like no other. We start out head over heels. We can't get enough of that person, but what happens all too often is is we take on responsibilities, we start going in two different directions, have kids, and when we're not watching, over time, it just seems like we can drift apart. And then you wonder, what happened? What happened to us? How did we get here? Maybe that's where you're at today, this morning. Maybe that's where you've been at a particular season of time in your marriage. The problem with marriage is that most marriages start off as ideal, then turn into an ordeal, and pretty soon you're looking for a new deal. And that's dangerous. And I realize that in speaking to a group this size, we have all kinds of different circumstances. Some of you are single, and you're maybe after hearing that song, kind of glad, you know? Like, I I think I'm good. But some of you are single and you'd like to be married, wondering, who does God have for me? Does God have somebody that I could build a life with? Others of you maybe have been married for a long, long time, years and years and years. Some of us, maybe this is the very first year of your marriage and you're you're looking out ahead at your future. Some are here this morning, are, are going through a separation or a divorce. Some have been divorced and are maybe in a second or third marriage. We're just in different places, right? But we all have one thing in common, and that is that we have a deep desire in our lives for intimacy. We want to share our lives with someone that we can develop an intimate, trusting, long-lasting relationship that will not only survive, but will thrive. A relationship that God would honor. And the reason why Christian marriage is still a good idea and why holy matrimony holds the greatest promise for the deepest levels of intimacy and closeness is that there is no relationship like a married relationship where Christ is at the center and that marriage is working. There is no greater potential for intimacy and closeness and trust and passion. So often... Uh, we struggle, let's just be real, we struggle, we struggle to find our bearings, we struggle with selfishness, we struggle with sin, we often can wake up and wonder if we're really still in love, but there is no representation of what it looks like for Jesus to love his people, the church, broken and imperfect as we are, than a marriage. And that's what we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 5, is this picture that Jesus gives us of himself loving his church and his church loving him back and saying, that's what I want marriage to look like. Now, I think it's important to clarify the difference between a Christian marriage or a covenant and a culturally acceptable legalized marriage. According to the Supreme Court, any two people can get married, a legally, culturally Acceptable marriage is one in which two people of any gender getting legally wed and obtaining the societal rights that that may provide. 
Some of you are happy about that. Some of you are sad about that. I'm not here to debate the merits or drawbacks of a cultural, legal marriage of two people. But what it will become increasingly important for Christ followers, those who view the scripture as sacred and inspired, it will become mission critical to understand what a Christian marriage is, what that covenant looks like. It's different. It is so much more than two people agreeing to live together or have sex together or raise kids together or share finances or cash in on Medicare or Social Security or afford to have certain kinds of tax breaks given to you. And if that's what you think as a Christian marriage is, then obviously you will, you're going to be very threatened by the most recent Supreme Court ruling. Some of the Facebook posts that I've read in the last week actually make me very sad because I see at times well-meaning, I guess, uh, supposed Christians lashing out with a mean spirit towards those who are celebrating this court's decision. And then I'm equally confused and saddened by supposed Christ followers who don't understand what the Bible says about Christian marriage and how different and unique that it actually is. I mean, we live in a polarized world today. Marriage, the word marriage, does not mean the same thing to everybody. Christian marriage is something unique and different than just a legalized form of marriage. We have to acknowledge that. And I'm personally not threatened by the reality because I know there is a unique thing that cannot be legalized or illegal called Christian matrimony. It's distinctly a Christian covenant between a man and a woman where God is the author of this Christian marriage and its original design can never be made legal or illegal because it comes from God. So let's move forward in confidence that God is not caught off guard, he's not threatened, and neither should we. Let's not get caught up in throwing stones, but let's look at ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, God, is my marriage a Christian marriage? Am I walking that out? Not just where I pasted the name of God on top of it, but I'm saying where I am living a Christian marriage. Let's reflect and ask that so that we can present to the hurting, broken world we live in a true representation of what it means to live in a committed covenant of marriage that Christ honors. Today, I want us to look at that. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21. If you have a Bible, please open it with me. This section of scripture marks another major shift in the book of Ephesians. In the first several chapters of Ephesians, we see how God loves his people and pours out on us. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. That we're adopted into his family. That we are forgiven. That we are saved. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see our response to that. That we have a calling and that it's our walk with God that chapters 4 and 5 begins to unpack. And now at verse 21... It takes a shift and looks and starts to drill down into our relationships with each other, starting with the married relationship. If you're single, please don't check out because maybe, just maybe, God wants to speak to you about the type of spouse you should become or the one that you might be looking for. Let's start in verse 21. Submit to one another out of 
reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church, that's you and me, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God made marriage, you see, to be this unbreakable covenant. And it's a representation of God's unbreakable, unbreakable covenant with you and me, that he loves us. We are his people as flawed as we are. He'll never leave us or never forsake us. And this passage that we read shows the roles within a marriage, and that's because they point us, these roles and how a marriage, a Christian marriage should work, points us to God. It points us to his love for his people. And it points his, the, the, that his people's love back towards him. That's what marriage is a representation of. It's a reflection of God working in and through his people. And I want us to look at three basic things this morning. First, God's original design for marriage. God is the author of Christian marriage. We want to look at that. Then we want to look at how sin has come in and really messed with marriage, hurt it. And then lastly, how God is redeeming and restoring our lives, specifically redeeming and restoring marriages. So let's go back to the very beginning, the very first man, the very first woman found in Genesis chapter 2, which, by the way, Ephesians 5 does refer us back to Genesis 2. And it says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God created man and woman in the image of himself. They are image bearers of God. They were created to love each other, to work together, to be in this lifelong partnership where God's power and his purpose filled that relationship. They were to work together in life, serving each other, caring for each other, enjoying sex, but not as a me- and an end unto itself, but to fill the earth with godly heritage who would declare and display the glory of a great God. And the Lord said, That's good. That's really good. And then in Genesis 2, also found in Ephesians 5.31, says, for this reason, for this reason, the reason of a Christian marriage, will a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Here's a narrative and a design of the very first marriage. And even though no other people existed at this time, God pointed to the future and he said that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Not two individuals fighting for their rights, not two individuals going in two different directions, but they would form a new relationship and make something brand new out of their lives together. They won't lose their uniqueness or their individuality, but they'll join those things together, creating something that he called one flesh. I like how the King James Version of the Bible says a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There's a leaving and a cleaving together, becoming one flesh. And that one flesh, by the way, doesn't just happen on your wedding night. It's not just talking about sexual intercourse. It's talking about the merging and the mingling and the sharing of two lives that over the process of time, over the process and the journey of your, of your life together, you become one flesh. You keep on leaving and cleaving and receiving. Some people have been married for years and they've never left their father and mother. Sure, you moved out, but you never moved on. And God wants to create something totally new with you and with your spouse that you look different. You create your own traditions. And you don't expect your spouse to respond to you the way your mother did or your father did. That's unfair to your spouse. God's saying, you know, you're, that your partner should not have to compete with your parents. That makes uh, a wife feel very insecure. It makes a husband feel very inadequate. So leave your parents and cleave to your wife. What does it mean to become one flesh? Well, each person represented here, each person is unique. They have their own gifts and skills and education and the ways that parents built into their lives. They're both unique. They're both special. And some people look at marriage as just kind of the coming together of these two people who are really attracted to each other, have a lot in common, and let's just kind of live our lives together. We'll go our separate ways, but we'll live under the same roof. And then others actually go all the way to the point of, hey, let's, let's tie this knot, you know, and let's wrap this thing up in what we'll call a legal marriage, and we will, we'll do it right. We're still two individuals living under the same house, going in separate directions, having our own kind of sense of rights, but now we're legally bound together in a marriage. But when God talks about becoming one flesh, he's talking not about the two just joining like that. He's talking about both people pouring into one another's lives over the process of time through listening, through communicating, through forgiving, through sharing, through, through really allowing the other person to embrace you with their strengths and with their weaknesses, that you become something totally new together that can't be separated. I mean, can it ever become yellow and blue again? 
What God said is what he's joined together. Let no man pull apart. Let no person create a separation in it because it's unique and it's special. And there's the merging of lives together into a one flesh relationship. And it's unique because it goes far beyond just living together and far beyond just having sex together. And yet, the bummer is, is that sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, it affected that very first married relationship between Adam and Eve. That partnership that they had where they had this common vision, this common mission given by God, the Holy Spirit was indwelling them. They were headed there. They were listening to each other. They were, they were naked and unashamed, meaning that they were completely transparent with one another. They were enjoying that relationship. It was built on trust. And then sin entered into the world. And that partnership now had the effects of distrust. And one of the very first things we see happening when sin marred the relationship was they began to blame other people, right? Adam said, God, it's the woman that you gave me. She's the reason for all my problems now. And the woman said, well, it's the devil. He made me do it. And so everybody's blaming somebody else now. And then as you go on and you read in Genesis chapter 3 the effects of, the, of, the, of God's judgment on sin, you'll see that a woman now had this inordinate desire for the man to meet her emotional needs and her needs in general. She had this, this desire that only God could meet. And the man has this new desire to control his woman and lord over her. And now there's this power struggle that goes on in marriages because of sin that entered the marriage and entered into our world. And so we still feel the effects of that today, don't we? And yet, the scripture teaches us in Ephesians 2 that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's God who loved us when we were unlovable. That sin has worked its ravages through our life, and yet God sent his one and only son to come and redeem us and forgive us and heal us. Buy us back and give us a fresh start and show us something new and different that this world does not know how to live out. Say, this is the way. This is the way to build your marriage. This is the way to build your life. And it's built on God's grace. Aren't you happy for grace? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't leave us in that place of sin and brokenness? But he's still delivering selfish people from sin. He's still changing hard-hearted hearts and putting in hearts of flesh that can forgive. Jesus is the perfect model of selfless love. He left heaven. He came to earth. He took on the initiative and the responsibility, and he went to the cross. Husbands, this is what God is calling you and I to do, to take the initiative and take responsibility. Verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The Bible is simply saying, husbands, love your wife like Jesus loves you. How does he love you? You're the church. Love your wives as Jesus loves you. Well, he took the initiative. 
he takes on responsibility. In the same way that Jesus loves me, I'm called to love my wife. Love is not passive. Love doesn't wait on the other person to get their act together. No, love seeks out. It takes the initiative. The Greek word for the word love is agape. And that's a special kind of usage of that word because it means God's love, his selfless love. When we hear the word love in our culture, we think of you fall in love, right? And you can fall out of love. Love is a feeling. It's a passion. And that is a form of the usage, but that's not this, that's not this word. I'm, I'm positive. There are most days God's not in love with me, but he loves me. In other words, I didn't do all the right things that day to be lovable. I didn't look the right way, act the right way, have all the right attitudes. He's not just infatuated with me that day, but he loves me. He loves you. That's the type of love that he calls us to love our spouses with, guys. What does that love look like in a marriage? Well, let's break it down in verse 25, love sacrifices. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's this calling to lay our lives down, not to lord our leadership over someone else. No, it's to be a, a servant, to be one who sacrifices. And that's hard, isn't it? Gosh, it'd be so much easier just to die in one fail swoop of chivalrous action. But no, you got to die every day. In all these little ways, right? That's what's really killing you. It's all these daily, small sacrifices. And that's what it means to lay your life down for your wife, to not insist on your own way, but to sacrifice your rights in order to meet her needs. Biting your tongue when you want to get in the last word, when you know you have the perfect comeback. Making the first move towards reconciliation when you're certain it's her fault. Who went to the cross? Jesus did. We are called to love our wives as Christ loves his church. Love also not only sacrifices, it sanctifies. And that means to make holy in verse 26. The word holy means to be set apart and seen as special. Isn't that cool? You think of that word and you think, oh, that sounds like a big religious word. No, it means to make them special. God calls us as husbands to make our wives feel special, to make them special. Sadly, many women cease to feel chosen or special shortly after their wedding day because their husband stops loving them and sanctifying in the way that he did leading up to the wedding, right? When you're doing all your best moves and all your best stuff. One guy said, well, you know, I told my wife I loved her the day I got married. If it ever changes, I'll let her know. Sorry, that's not good enough, right? Another, another guy said, well, how often should I tell her that I love her? I say, well, before someone else does. Wake up. One of the ways we can tell them that we love them, well, one is just tell them. The other is by showing them, making sure they understand knowing their love language and showing them love and making them feel special every day. Love sacrifices, love sanctifies, it purifies her. Verse 26 says, 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Jesus' word cleanses us. The Bible has a cleansing effect in our soul that when we spend time, guys, in the word, in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you need to be a Bible scholar. I'm not even saying you need to memorize scripture or know everything your wife knows. Some of, some of our wives are like really smart in the scripture. Quit measuring yourself to her and be the one to take initiative and take responsibility. You don't have to be the most amazing leader. Let's face it, a lot of women are way better leaders than men. A lot of women are smart. A lot of women have talents and skill sets that guys don't have. But God didn't set it up that way to go, well, okay, you can take this one and sit on the bench and let, let this other person lead. No, God calls men to step up and lead and cover and be a spiritual servant of their wife. That means share with your wife what you're learning from God. Share when you read the scripture. And it's one of the ways that you wash your wife in the water of the word is by just sharing what God's saying to you, what he's doing what you're learning, how you're changing, where you need to repent, how God's at work in your heart. Your spouse wants to know those things. Your wife will lead the way if she has to, but she'd far rather you be the man of God that you're designed to be. That means sometimes you just wake up and say, honey, let's, let's, let's go to church. Honey, let's get involved in a life group. Honey, let's be a part of Rooted. Not waiting on your wife to lead the way, but you lead the way. She wants that more than she wants to see how much money you can make or how you, well you perform in bed or how har- far you can hit a golf ball. She cares more about your spiritual leadership. Love also beautifies her. Verse 27 says, And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. A bride goes to great uh, detail to prepare for the wedding, right? Beautifying herself. I remember Tisa spent hours tanning and fixing her hair, and she just looked amazing. And in all the weddings I've done, I've never seen an ugly bride, ever. But notice here in this verse, it's different. It is not the church beautifying herself for Jesus. It's Jesus beautifying the church for himself. It's his work, not hers. See, someday God will present you and me to himself, and you will stand before him perfect in every way, and it'll be because of him, not you. Christ, the bridegroom, the head of the church, doesn't crush the church. Rather, he sacrificed and sanctifies it, he purifies it, he beautifies it. Why? So that she might become everything that he longs for her to be. So a husband shouldn't use his leadership to crush or stifle his wife or frustrate her from being herself. His love for her will help her achieve her fullest potential because love beautifies. And then finally, the scripture teaches us that it also nurtures. In verse 28, it says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his, uh, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
See, love nurtures her. Everyone feeds and cares for his own body. And he's saying, care for your wife with that same attention and that same concern. And it goes beyond just nurturing for physical needs and food and shelter and protection. But it also includes emotional and spiritual needs that your wife has. Now, sure, you can't meet them all. And, and, and you know, God has to be the main one meeting needs in any marriage on both sides. But God has called husbands to do their very best to beautify and nurture. Think of how the Lord loves you and then love like that. Here's why this is a biblically unique Christian marriage. Because it's more than just legal or illegal. It's impossible. You can't live like that in a marriage without God. It's beyond it. It's beyond human love. It, it means God loving through you to the other person. And you can't do that unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That we have to know him and walk with him and be connected to him. We have to have this ongoing relationship with the Son of God in our life, if we have a half a chance to walk this stuff out. And yet with Christ, it's, you are sufficient because it's the Holy Spirit empowering you and it's Jesus loving through you. Now, if you're a wife or a future wife, would you say it's a pretty tall order for a guy to live up to? God is asking you also as a wife to reflect the church's love for Jesus. See, the husband's role is to reflect Jesus' love for his church, people, you and me. And the wife's role is to then reflect the love that the church has back to Jesus in a spirit of submission and cooperation. In verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves you. Wives, love your husband like the church loves Jesus and submits to Jesus. Now, in today's culture, submission and headship are made fun of, aren't they? They're kind of a mockery. And, and I believe it's because they're misunderstood. Mostly, the world has no real concept of how those things actually work. First, let's be clear. The Bible is not asking a wife to submit to all men. A wife, a woman, is not in submission to all men. That is not at all what it's saying. It's saying to your own husband because it's a very unique relationship like no other. So what is submission according to the Bible? Well, first of all, let me tell you, it is not obedience. It's a completely different word, and it's a word used for children obeying their parents. That is not the word submit. It doesn't mean that you do whatever your husband tells you to do. You become the doormat. You just say, welcome home, master. Glad you're here. Please step on me. No, submission is the Greek word hupotasso, a compound of hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to arrange. You arrange yourself under. It actually is a Greek military term in which a very capable, well-educated, well-trained soldier willingly submits themselves to their lead commander, to their lead officer. 
It's always used in the middle voice, submit yourself, which, which infers voluntary submission. Submission cannot be demanded. You can demand obedience from someone, but submission has to be willingly given. That means, guys, you're out of luck. You can't pull that card on your wife. Submission is offered. It's given. It's joyful. And it's of someone's own will to accomplish God's bigger purposes. Wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. There's the key. It's unto Jesus. You can't submit to an, to an imperfect person. There's no man who will ever be good enough as a leader, will never love you well enough as a human being to be worthy of your submission. Never. So you submit as unto Jesus. You have to look past the imperfect person to the perfect God you love and serve. And so you submit out of love and reverence for Christ. That doesn't mean that you allow that person to lead you into immorality. You never need to submit if your husband's asking you to do something immoral or illegal or abusive. Never means you can't have tons of questions and push back and get them to look at different angles and participate in a collaborative leadership style. But submission is wrapping yourself around that leader, that person that has strengths and weaknesses and saying, I want you to win as a spiritual leader and I'm here to help make that happen. Jesus asked questions in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember, when he didn't necessarily agree on the game plan. He said, if there's any other way, Father, for this cup to pass from me, man, I want that. And he heard the father say, no, you need to go to the cross. And Jesus said, okay, well, not my will, but thy will be done. There was this willing submission to the will of the father. And at the end of the day, when all has been discussed and all has been prayed over and all, all the sides have been considered, husbands have that difficult role of trying their very best to lead the way. And it takes an enormous amount of trust and faith in God to submit to their leadership. So how can any normal person do that? You can't. That's the whole point. That's why Christian marriage or matrimony is different than any other form of marriage that we can define through our legal system, is that Christian matrimony depends on God empowering the person to do what these roles infer, that there is no way to do it without his spirit at work in us, without us yielding ourselves daily to God's will and God's plan and God's spirit and God's love. Verse 33 says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. I guess those are the two difficult things that we have. Husbands have a difficult time showing love, and wives have a difficult time respecting an imperfect leader. And so he calls us out on both our issues, and he says, that's what you need to do. You see, this whole section of Scripture is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church. There's no better model, no better how-to than to look at how Jesus loves his church, you and me, and then how we, as his church, love him back. Study 
that, and you will see how to live in a Christian marriage. This is what it means. And it's amazing when we do it God's way. It's not perfect. I didn't say it was easy, but it's amazing. There is no deeper relationship than you can experience on the planet than a marriage that has Christ at the center where both people are working hard at it. Both people are yielding. Both people are inviting. Tisa and I will celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary in about a month, and our marriage has not been perfect. It's, yeah, thanks. But we're both committed. We're just committed. We've been through seasons where it's worked great. We've been through seasons where it didn't work at all. Marriage is not a 50-50 deal. It's 100-100. I don't wait on Tisa being lovable before I love her, and she doesn't wait on me being a good leader before she submits to me. We both have to walk in faith and try to love as the Lord loves through each other. We have fought like cats and dogs before. We have been mean to each other. We have sinned. We have made mistakes in raising our kids. We've gone in to see professional marriage counselors more than once, and I'm glad that we didn't give up and we just kept working at it, but we didn't settle for the marriage to just cripple along and survive. We fought for something better than that. And because of that, we have something unique and special, and there's nobody and nothing I love more than my wife, Tisa. There's nobody I feel closer to, nobody I trust more, because there is no relationship that has the potential of a Christian marriage where Jesus is Lord at the center. God the Father designed it that way. He designed marriage to be this reflection of his love, his never-ending commitment to his people. Sin and selfishness become like a flesh-eating bacteria that kills marriages. Jesus came to restore. He came to heal. He came to redeem. Will you let him do that in your marriage, in your life? Will you let the Holy Spirit empower you and begin loving the other person through you? not waiting on for, for them to respond, not waiting on them to do their role, but you just saying, God, out of my love and obedience to you, I will do mine. That's where turning a hurting marriage around starts, with you going to God and asking him to turn your heart around. Don't wait on the other person. If you're thinking of getting married, maybe you're rethinking it today. But I want to tell you, it's awesome. It's awesome, especially when you find someone who loves God. Don't settle for anything less than another person who loves God and is wanting to obey him. And I'm not talking about someone who talks a good talk, but you never see them growing in their faith. I'm talking about someone who walks the walk, someone who's willing to wait sexually until the day of your marriage. Don't listen to that line. That I, I, we have to have sex because it's how I show my love to you. That is a load. Come on. No, if that person loves God and wants to obey God, they will show self-control and restraint and love you by waiting. Don't commit to just any marriage. Hold out. Hold out for one that will honor God, one where both people love God and want to go in the same direction, knowing that it will not be easy 
but it will be the best and deepest relationship that can ever be forged this side of heaven. Let's pray together. God, we just come to you humbly and we ask, help us, God. Help us where we struggle. Help us where we hurt each other. Help us where we've allowed sin to enter in and we've not dealt with it. Our selfishness. Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us for those things, holding on to those grudges, counting up each other's sin, and developing a hard heart in the process. And today, Lord, we are in need of heart transplants. We are in need of soft hearts. We're in need, God, of fresh vision for what a a married Christian relationship can look like and be like. Forgive us, Lord, for receiving way too much information from the world about how to live out our lives and not nearly enough from you. So we're turning to you today, God, and asking for your help. Empower us, Jesus. We look at this stuff and we say, there's no way I can do that. And we're right. There is no way without you living in us and through us. There's no way without you loving through us that we can love the way you want us to. We can serve and lead and care for. There's no way that a wife can submit, Lord, without your power at work in them. Would you show us, inspire us, teach us, help us, Lord? Believe for something more than what we've settled for. We pray these things in your powerful name, Jesus. And we thank you for it. Amen. Let's stand up together. Enjoy the rest of your day. If you need prayer, there'll be people up here to pray with you. Have a great day.